Welcome to show 350 of Data Driven. In this episode, Frank and Andy interview Chris McDermott, VP of Engineering at Wallaroo. Wallaroo helps customers operationalize machine learning to ROI in the cloud, in decentralized networks, and at the edge. It's a fun conversation on MLOps and the future of intelligent systems and model management. Now on to the show. Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emergent fields of artificial intelligence, data science, and of course, data engineering. The fundamental thing that kind of underpins it all, and with me on this epic road trip down the information superhighway, is my favorite data engineer of all time, Andy Leonard. How's it going, Andy? Good, Frank. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Uh, we just... Um, uh, we're chatting in the uh, virtual green room about some of the logistical challenges we had yeah. um, um, with Microsoft bookings and how kind of like you can only have, you know, like remember that the pick any two triangle, right? Good, fast and yep, cheap. Yep, like yep, we can yep. only have two things, two features of what we needed to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Uh, despite the logistical challenges, we are excited here to have um, Chris McDermott who is the VP of Engineering at Wallaroo. And uh, he is a passionate uh, and intellectually curious professional with excellent communication skills. He loves hard problems. Uh, then he must have definitely loved the process to get on the show. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, have yet to meet one he couldn't solve somehow. Maybe we should get you, Chris, to help us with our scheduling. Software. Really? Uh, you visit later? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, welcome absolutely. to the show, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be on. It's nice to meet you both. Cool. Likewise, likewise. So you're coming to us from the uh, Mile High City. That's right. Um, awesome place. It's uh, I was there once uh, for an internal Microsoft conference, actually. Oh, nice. And beautiful town. Like, it was yeah. just really cool. Uh, I think it was the second biggest event that in Denver history was the Microsoft thing. Wow. Um, nice. And they, they literally ran out of hotel rooms. Like, it was... <laughs> oh, wow. It was pretty wild, yeah. Wow. I think it was yeah. um, just before one of the big parties had a convention there. And nice. um, they... Oh, had, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was so... I'm actually slated to head back there next year for a Red Hat conference. So we'll see. We'll see if the hotel situation has improved or not. I think so, it's improved a little bit. The city's been growing a lot. So uh, cool. Yeah, cool. lots of Didn't, Isn't Denver the place that has like the large bear up against yes. the conference yeah. center there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like that? That's okay. exactly right. There's a giant okay. blue bear appearing in the window of the conference center. Yeah. I was there. And uh, cool. and and I remembered that that was the that was the first thing I remembered. It was um I was there in 2007 for mm -hmm. a kind of a Microsoft conference. It was the uh, Professional Association for SQL Server. That's what it was mm -hmm. called back then. And um I was actually the first one I spoke at. I've spoken at a bunch since then, but 2007 in Denver was the first. And um, yeah, like I echo what Frank said, uh, beautiful city mm -hmm. and uh, just very picture picturesque. Yeah. Yeah. The, we the weather in the mountains are beautiful. Yeah. And it's funny, like, you know, on the East Coast, we talk about mountains, but it's nothing <laughs> yeah, yeah. like that. Like, right. Yeah. yeah we, quite the same. You would laugh at what we call mountains. Yeah. Um, right. But I remember a Robin Williams bit where he said something like that people he admired the people in Denver because they got to Denver and they looked at the mountains and went, 
Well, I can't say what he said, but he had a kind of an Elon moment. Uh, <laughs> There's so like, many of those. There's so no, many. No of more. Those. We're stopping right here. We're not going uh, over those mountains. <laughs> so, um, you're VP of engineering at Wallaroo. So tell us a little bit about Wallaroo. Mm. Plus, you're also ex data robot too. That that's interesting. Yes. Yep, X Data Robot. Yeah, so I've been working in the machine learning and AI space for uh, about seven years now, I guess, or six years, and um, it's been really fun. You know, it's uh, it's a good time to be in the business. Uh, there's a lot of development happening, um, very fast pace of change, which I appreciate. And um, you know, Wallaroo has been really great. Like uh, the team is fantastic, and the people are wonderful, and it, it's a lot of fun working. You know, with people that you enjoy hanging out with and, and you respect and everything. That's, that's very important to me. That's awesome. Um, but I also just, I think the product is awesome. Um, and it, it's really, I think, uh, um, playing well in the market. Like we are focusing on making it as easy as possible to deploy and manage machine learning models. And the focus is really on any model using any framework and being able to deploy onto sort of any architecture, any hardware, um, and being able to leverage GPUs if you need them or different kinds of CPUs, different, acceleration libraries that people have tailored to the different architectures. <clears throat> and honestly, there are not a lot of other solutions that tackle those two problems for people. Right. Um, yeah. A lot of the other companies that we're competing with, uh, they are trying to be like an end-to-end -end solution or like really force people into, you know, their platform. So you train on their platform, you deploy on their platform, you manage on their platform, but it's very limiting in terms of what you can bring onto the platform and, and being able to uh, deploy onto different types of architectures and um, platforms and things like that. So it's really exciting. It's fun. I think that's really important that you bring up the CPU solutions. Mm -hmm. um, as I've been tinkering, you know, the past couple of years with, uh, you know, with the different um, different platforms that are out there, it's that's definitely a smaller market, but maybe mm -hmm. it's emerging now. I'm just not sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I do I wonder. Mean, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, a lot of the time people conflate training and inferring, which is, you know, sort of the two different stages. Like, first you have to train a model, but then you yeah. use the model to make inferences, which, uh, you know, it's really like asking the model to make a prediction or you give it some input and it gives you some output. Yeah. And um, they're, they're very, very different tasks. And just because, you know, like you may want to use some hardware GPUs for training, doesn't necessarily mean that you need the GPUs when you are in production and you're asking it for predictions. Um, a lot of the time, you know, the model is small enough that you really don't need to, but there's so much hype. It, it's hard sometimes to separate the hype from the, you know, the real stuff. And yeah. Yeah. The hype, the hype machine is real. I mean, like mm -hmm. it's, and, and, and I, I want to get your thoughts on, uh, you know, I mean, I love generative AI. I'm not knocking generative AI, but it feels like it's taken all the oxygen out of the room for all mm -hmm. the other kinds of AI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Cause there are a lot of, uh, you know, great models like XG boost is a very standard one. Um, and mm -hmm. it's been around for, you know, a long time, meaning at least, for, you know, five or 10 years now or something, but, um, that really honestly solves so many problems and it's such a small, easy model to deploy. Um, I wish people would focus more on, on that kind of thing rather than the hype. Right. No, that's a good point. And I think you bring up an interesting point because not all, not all AI workloads are created equal, right? Obviously mm -hmm. there's, uh, I heard this term the other day and I had to spit my coffee out because it was just so funny. Legacy AI, 
Like, yeah, so there's, yeah. gen, there's generative AI that's, now. There's legacy AI. That's crazy talk. You know, and <laughs> I was just like, wow. Um, but um, you know, because you know, legacy AI basically you're not using deep learning and not using neural yeah. networks. Um, generally, you don't get a good boost from GPUs. Correct. Um, right. And that's something that when when you tell that to even technical decision makers, they they, they kind of look at you like you know what sorcery is that like you know because mm -hmm. they'll 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 say like oh we don't have enough GPUs there's no budget for GPUs I'm mm -hmm. like well what 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 types of workloads are you running and I tell them it's like well it's not really a concern for you like you don't yeah. need them yeah and you see you know the 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 people who are doing the actual data science they're like yeah duh what's we've been trying to tell you. Yeah, but right. you see, like the leaders of these teams are like, <gasps> like you know, <laughs> it's um, now just for my own education. There wasn't there something called Rapids, and it was an acronym that let you use GPUs for certain types of, like XGBoost. I think was one of them. <laughs> Random Forest. Day. I don't know. Oh, you see, it's funny because it was an, it's an NVIDIA thing, and obviously it only oh, optimizes okay. on, but like it was. I remember hearing about it in 2019, and I'm thinking, wow, this is going to change everything, and you haven't heard of it. <laughs> Only, like, one ever per other person I met in the wild has ever heard of it, and he was at the mm -hmm. same conference I was at where we mm -hmm. heard about it. So I'm like, that's kind of unusual. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, we get Everything on a lot changes of so stuff. fast, you know, and yeah. it's really hard to tell sometimes what what uh, which new developments are going to end up being the future and which ones are going to end up as dead ends right um, you know and even all the transformer stuff that that is powering gpt and and those similar types of models um mm -hmm. i think that was originally written up in a white paper in like 2017 or something mm -hmm. and it just kind of sat around for a while and nobody paid a whole lot of attention to it until yeah. OpenAI really ran with it so yeah so attention wanna... is all you need i think that's was that the paper Sounds right, yeah. Yeah. And so it was I don't want to go. Oh, sorry. Mm -hmm. go ahead. Yeah. sorry, Andy, I cut you That's off. That's okay. <laughs> no, I, I don't want to go too far downstream before I say cred boost for using the phrase, I don't know. Oh, <laughs> Somebody with your credentials, you know, saying, I don't know, that, that's super cool. So cred Honestly, cred there's way too much to know. <laughs> there's no way any one <laughs> person could know it all. I, yeah, I cool. like the joke. I haven't checked my phone or like newsfeed in like half an hour and I'm like woefully <laughs> behind now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it feels that way. Like in the whole, oh, it really does. Yeah. especially it was especially interesting when the whole drama around open AI and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole too far, but when all of that soap opera kind of unfolded, yeah. Yeah. it was kind of like, What's the latest? Like, is yeah. he back? Is he gone? Is he working Microsoft? Wait, they, he did work in Microsoft for like 10 minutes and now he doesn't. Like, yeah. You know, at, at some some point down the middle of it, it's like, call me when this is over and I'll yeah. deal with the. Uh, uh, I'll the, check in again. Yeah. I'll check in yeah. again. Uh, but that's just the human side of it, let alone the, mm -hmm. let alone the technology side of it. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. operationalization, I think that's going to be mm -hmm. the buzzword. Obviously, ChatGPT and Gen AI is taking all the air out of the room. I think the next buzzword is yeah. going to be operationalization. Uh, one, because it's kind of hard to say, and I'm not going to lie, I've had the practice. <laughs> but um, it's something that I think companies and organizations that adopt AI 
whether it's legacy AI or generative <laughs> AI, um, they're going to have to realize like it's one thing to build the model, and then it becomes a okay now yeah. what? Yeah, yeah. Well, and models really are just like any other software. Uh, it's not something that you just write once and you you know throw it out there and it runs forever without being touched, right? Um, yeah. All of it requires care and feeding, and and machine learning models are no different. So, um, I think part of it is um, you know how do you deploy it, and then you know how do you keep that that deployment up to date? You know, getting critical patches and vulnerability fixes and things like that. Um, but also, how do you monitor the model and how it's performing, and how it's performing relative to the real world? Um, because the world doesn't stand still, right? So even if the model was trained on some data and it was 98% accurate when it was trained, uh, as the world shifts and, and the situation around it shifts, um, that accuracy will almost certainly start to degrade over time. So you need to monitor that and you need to know when to retrain the model. Um, yeah. And you have to be kind of keeping track of uh, new training data, right? So the, the, the new environment that the model is operating in, you need to be recording all of the, the inputs and also paying attention to the ground truth of, you know, what was the outcome of that prediction that the model made? Was it accurate or not um, after the fact and and correlating that back into your training data so you can retrain the models and you know keep them going over time and that's just you know assuming you're going to be using the same model forever um, but as we just finished talking about the new models coming out all the time new approaches new techniques uh, yeah. so yeah it really is is something you've got to pay attention to it's an extremely yeah it's an extremely dynamic space mm -hmm. I've heard this called MLOps for the longest time, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I've also heard a new term kind of pop up on the radar called AIOps mm. for this. Uh, what do you call it? I generally call it MLOps. Um, you know, one, I, I sort of per, like AI and ML, there's an interesting you know difference there in, in terms of who uses the different terms and when they use them. Um, for me, AI is more of a general term that I use conversationally. And most of the time, if I'm trying to be fairly technical and specific, I'll usually revert to ML um, because in fact, most of these things are machine learning. AI is a much more nebulous concept. And I, I don't even think everybody agrees on, on what AI is or what the threshold would be. Um, you know, if you're doing statistical analysis, I think most people probably would not call that AI, but there are a lot right. of machine learning models that do work that way. Um, and, and that's definitely like part of the gradient, you know, um, I've noticed that too. Like there, it is a gradient too. Like there's not a, yeah. a, a like a hard like, you know. Typically, it depends on the audience, right? If they're, yes. If they're BDMs, business decision makers, they're going to use AI. If yeah. they're technically yeah. focused people, they tend to prefer the term ML. Um, yeah, that's also been my experience. Interesting. Quite often. So I like ML ops because one, it sort of grounds you a little bit more in that technical perspective. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's sort of a, like, to me, I think I came up through DevOps. A lot of my, you know, first half of my career was DevOps and infrastructure and things like that. And, um, I think part of the appeal of the term MLOps is it taps into a lot of the DevOps, um, associations, right. And right. the concepts and the themes of DevOps, which is really about, um, merging different skill sets and breaking down silos and getting different teams to communicate with each other and, and to collaborate more um being more dynamic um not just you know putting software out there and, and letting it run forever but keeping it up to date monitoring it um recording the logs you know all of that kind of stuff um and and getting into a flow of continuous deployment you know continuous integration continuous testing continuous deployment 
And I think on the ML side, that's also where ML ops really shines and, and is bringing those themes to the party. Um, rather than a data scientist training a model, deploying it, and you know, uh, throwing it over the wall to to like an operations team or something, um, it's getting all these different teams and skill sets to work together. It's building a continuous you know pipeline um, with monitoring and, and feedback loops and so on. So that's that's why I like ML ops. No, I like that too. So in order to prevent any hate mail come in or or but actually <laughs> comments. AI ops is also used, I've heard, in um, uh, the telcos and network operators tend uh, to have a term called AI ops where they use AI to help operate their network. So that is, got it. It, 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 it's a it's a namespace yeah. collision, which I prefer, which I prefer ML ops for to avoid the namespace collision. Plus all the reasons you said, mm -hmm. um, you know, what's interesting is, and I came from a software engineering background and. You know, and I'll be honest, I was not initially a big uh, believer in, in DevOps, but mm -hmm. kind of as time went on, I became a convert. But I think that, mm -hmm. you know, when you look at how AI models, ML models, whatever, um, mm -hmm. how they get operationalized, you look at it, and I, I often I often can tell who the fans of the new Star Wars movies are by using this analogy, because mm -hmm. I'll say it's the 24 15 Star Wars movie and the 1977 movie mm -hmm. DevOps DevOps being kind of like the original uh, episode 4 and then the new the the first new one right mm -hmm. it's the same plot i mean uh -huh. the characters have changed <laughs> some things are different but for effectively it's the same plot and mm -hmm. you know some people will laugh like you did and some people i can see will you know their, their faces turn red <laughs> but uh but i mean it's like it's, it's the same pl plot the names the places have some have changed but you're right i mean i think and there's a lot of lessons we can learn yeah in the ml community from the devops world right because mm -hmm. you know prior to devops um you know the developers and operations had a very antagonistic relationship for the most part, I'm sure there's always exceptions. You know, I was I was joke is that they would only meet, uh, they would only have to interact three times a year, and one of those was the holiday Christmas party. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> and yeah. but if you want to deploy something in a far more agile way, where they have to, you know, you put it in some extreme cases every few hours, some new bit mm -hmm. of code gets gets pushed up. That's obviously on on one far end of the spectrum, but for the most part, you know, a couple times a month is not unreasonable. You have yeah. to automate that. You have to have processes in place. Yeah. And I I see a day, and if that day has not already come, I would be surprised that AI is going to be the same thing or ML, right? Mm -hmm. you, you're going to have mm -hmm. to get to your point, right? This is a continuous <clears throat> process. You know. Yeah. You yeah. can't get away with, you know, you have this isolated team of data scientists. They they yeah. they kind of go off to their little Area 51 type labs in secret. <laughs> Right, and then come back with some model, and and I'm guilty of this too. I've done this, right? Where I'm like, ah, oh, I built the model, I'm done. Mm -hmm. I did the math. Mm -hmm. I'm, I did the hard part. Uh, how are you going to deploy it? <laughs> Not my problem. Not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny, like yeah. you know, I caught myself, right? I caught myself doing that as I, you know, uh, you know, uh, doing that. Like recently, I had to I had to do a demo, and I had to work on a kind of a especially like predictive maintenance type thing. And mm. I took all this data, had the model, and I just said, here's the here's the link to the model. Have at it, pal. Mm -hmm. And then as I sent that, I was like, you know, I should probably be more involved in getting <laughs> this operation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a big part of it. Um, 
another big part of it though is um, scale, you know, and I think scale, it, scaling of compute and um, how people were using compute and how much compute was required was a big part of what drove DevOps. You know, if you were a sysadmin responsible for a hundred servers, that's, you know, challenging, but it's feasible. Like you can do that. You can keep them all up to date. You can keep them all in sync with each other, make sure they, they all have the same patch levels and, and so on. Um, but you scale that up to a thousand servers, eh, that gets a lot trickier. You try to go to a hundred thousand or, you know, if you're doing internet scale things like Google or Facebook or somebody, you're talking millions, tens of millions. And right. that level of scale requires, you know, everything has to be automated. Everything has to, has to work that way and it has to be resilient and it has to, you know, have automatic failover and stuff. You know, there's the, uh, XKCD where they're, you know, they get to a certain point, they're just roping off entire data centers and being like, all right, we're throwing that one away and moving on to the next one. Um, and for AI, I think a lot of the same stuff is happening. Uh, when, you know, 10 years ago or so, when, when people were just getting started on this journey and uh, as an entity, as a business entity, if you're talking about one or two use cases, you know, you can have humans curate that stuff and handcraft it, hand roll it, hand deploy it and hand manage it. But if you're a, a big enterprise company and you, you want to have hundreds of use cases in production or thousands or tens of thousands, there's just no way you have to automate it. No, that, that, that's, a, yeah. that's an excellent point. Like uh, one way I've heard it described is that if you're baking a loaf of bread for your family and friends or loaves of bread, you can do it in your kitchen, right? You don't have to do anything special, but if you're the wonder bread corporation or mm -hmm. you want to deliver at that scale, that's no longer an option. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're at that point where, and correct me if I'm wrong, where I think AI ad ML adoption or AI adoption mm -hmm. is still new enough where there's enough of naivete out there of, oh, we don't need to scale to that degree. Like we don't need the <laughs> yeah. production line. I think, I think that's ending. I think we're getting close yeah. to the, the end of that era, but that's kind yeah. of been my, yeah. I think so too. Yeah. Cause there, there are more and more um, ML tools in everybody's toolbox, right? So you were talking about. Right. Yeah telcos routing network traffic using ml models mm -hmm. um that's not going to be one model right the, like with latency and and everything else you're going to need you know very small lots and lots of very small models deployed on every router every top of rack switch every you know whatever 5g cell phone tower whatever you're talking about there are a lot of cell phone towers so right. you're not managing one model you're managing a fleet of models right across different geos and all kinds of things no, that's it, that's an excellent point. Sorry, Andy. That's okay. It does seem to scale like that, though, right? It's almost, it's almost tectonic. There's mm -hmm. a whole new layer going down. You know, that's mm -hmm. that's the new surface. Uh, yeah. I noticed on the website. I, I popped over to Wallaroo.ai, W-A-L-L-A-R-O-O.ai, and I noticed a familiar-looking uh, blurb just below the top of page. And it's familiar to me because uh, I started off in business intelligence. I'm still working in BI. And it, there's a note, 90% of AI initiatives fail to produce ROI. And I saw this in, you know, it's a very similar number, 85% in um in BI back in the day. And it's probably still true. So where does that number come from? Well, I think it reflects a lot of things, you know. Um some of them we were just talking about and, and where MLOps is coming from is, is uh, yeah. a lot of the failure modes were teams not really working with each other, right? Um, somebody decided we should be doing AI. So they hired the data scientist and the data scientist works in the corner for a while and 
you know, one, they don't have access to all the data. They don't know what the data is, where to find it, how to access it, how to clean it, um, yeah. what it means to the business. There, there are a whole set of challenges there. Um, and then, you know, they may train some models and, and get something, you know, to a point where they think that it's going to solve a problem. But then you've got to work with an IT organization to stand up infrastructure. You've got to work with somebody to package the model and build, you know, an API around it or a, a UI of some sort and figure out how to deploy it. Um, train people on how to use it and, and actually like somehow integrate it into your business process so yeah. that it's, it's driving business outcomes. And all of those are really tough challenges and all of them require breaking down those silos and getting a bunch of different people within an organization to talk to each other and communicate and to work together to solve something. Um, I don't think ML or AI is, is a magic wand that you just wave and magically provide value to a business. You've got to really think about what is your business doing and, you know, machine learning at, at heart, it, it's really just like a, a more efficient way of making decisions, you know, faster and more accurately um, mm -hmm. and with less human input. And so you've got to look for places where your business can either save a lot of money or make a lot of money by being able to answer a, a simple question repeatedly, very, very efficiently. Yeah. And that sounds easy, but in practice, defining the business problem is often one of the hardest parts. So um, now I'm seeing even more parallels. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. yep, yep, <laughs> you yep. know, that was the problem we were trying to solve uh, with business intelligence as well. So yeah. didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry about that. No, no worries. So, I, yeah, I think I agree with you. It, it, there are tons of parallels there. I think there are a lot of similar lessons to be learned. Um, and I yeah. think we are applying them in this, in this space in ways that we've applied them to other spaces in the past. Um, I also think there are technical challenges, you know, part of it is the field is moving so fast. Um, so there's just this constant stream of, of new frameworks, new models, new techniques. Um, and you have to kind of stay on top of that. You have to be careful with your tool selection, um, to make sure you're not, you know, going whole hog into some tool that sounds great today, but it's just not flexible and it's not going to be able to support like all these new things that are coming out. Yeah. Um, or Data that privacy. company could have internal, internal yes. political strife, which that's crazy talk, Frank. Cast, Absolutely right. Cast <laughs> doubt on their future, right? That right. would never happen. That would never happen. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. you were talking about privacy, which I think is another key thing. Here. Yeah, uh, data residency, data privacy, data security. Um, you know, all of those things matter tremendously. Um, and for for a business trying to uh, get value out of AI and ML, you know, a lot of it, uh, depends on having good data and, um, cleaning it and curating it and getting it ready for things. Um, but then it, it forces the, the organization to really kind of do an inventory. What do we have? What's useful? What's not useful? How much do we store? How much do we not store? Um, how do we comply with various regulatory environments, right? GDPR is, is the big one. Everybody, you know, loves to throw out there it's it's big and it's complicated but uh yeah you know things like that matter a lot and, and there's 300 plus million people behind that they're covered yeah. whatever. i think yeah. that you know that that is not only do they have a big stick but they have a big arm that they can wave that stick with yes yeah. you know if if a small country with like you know 50 people in it yeah. and that is something like gdpr people would just walk around it but i think yeah. that a, a block with i've heard different numbers but it's for you know Pushing four to five hundred million people—that's a that's a big enough market nobody can really ignore. Yeah. Um, what's interesting is on the LinkedIn page for Wallaroo, 
I love the website, by the way. I checked that out too. Thank you. Um, it talks about decentralized networks mm-hmm. and at the edge. Yes. What? How would you define a decentralized network? Yeah, this is a big new push for us that we've been focused on for, uh, I mean, we've been focused on it kind of for the last year, but it was a lot of uh, development on, on the back end. Um, and we just released kind of our first edge uh, features and product uh, in October. So it's kind of a new thing for us. But um, as you think about ML and edge or, or ML and AI um, and the, the fleets of models that we talked about and all these use cases and, you know, telcos and, and 5G cell phone towers and all of those types of things um, intersecting with data and data residency and privacy and security. It, it really seems to indicate to me and, and to us at Wallaroo in general that the future is lots and lots of models being deployed in lots of locations. Um, and I think that one big sort of industry-wide theme that I'm seeing is if the last 20 years, let's say, was the story of everybody picking up from their colos and moving to the cloud and centralizing all of their IT, I think that the next 20 years are going to be not like deconstructing the cloud. I think the clouds are here to stay and they're going to continue to grow right year over year. Um, but there will be more of a push out to more edge computing environments. Um, cell phones are getting more and more powerful. Cars are getting more and more powerful. Like there's more computer stuff happening um, all over the place. And the compute available, the memory and the storage that's available is all through the roof compared to what it was 20 years ago. And um, I think we're going to see more push for smaller, more specific machine learning models. And they're going to be pushed out to all these edge locations so that they can run close to where the data is. So you're not schlepping this sensitive data all over the internet and other people's networks. Um, yeah. But um, you know, you're taking advantage of, of compute resources that you have local to the data and making very fast decisions, um, you know, very efficiently. So I I have to jump in because uh, you you just made me feel really good. Mm-hmm. Um, about a year ago, I built a, a large server here at home, which I hadn't done in a decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, my my twenty year old son built it, um, but he and he helped me with. Uh, with picking out the new shiny fast parts uh, on it because I was so out of practice uh, with, <laughs> nice. with this. It's confessing, yeah. but uh, and it's really cool to see you know all of his all of his skills. He does edge. Um, we just picked up the Raspberry Pis are back in stock uh-huh. finally, yep. and I just yep, picked yep. up like three for thirty five bucks. You know the one gig fours. Yep. Anyway, super excited about that. One of the things I built I, at the time I built a box mm-hmm. about a year ago. You couldn't do a local GPT mm-hmm. or anything mm-hmm. close mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. And I said, eventually, we're going to be mm-hmm. able to do this. I, I made that guess, it, and it was a guess. Yeah. But about six months later, about six months ago, all of a sudden, I started seeing these 7 billion token machines showing up, and it started clicking. It was like, holy smokes, you can do this. I did make mm-hmm. one stupid mistake, and he didn't catch me on it. I bought a 12-gig GPU because... That's super crazy huge from 10 mm-hmm. years ago. And that uh-huh. wasn't super crazy huge at all. <laughs> Not anymore. No. no, but it's interesting. Now they're back now. They can run on, you know, on the 12 yeah. gigs. And like you said, yeah. you mentioned the CPU models. So I just yeah. learned a ton as I've been going through this. And um, that yeah. it's it's very encouraging to hear that. I had not heard anybody say edge and running mm-hmm. small ML models mm-hmm. on the edge. That's I mean, that's what we've yeah. been trying to do here. And I, I love the redundant, you know, the idea of a redundant array of whatever's, you yeah. know, MLs. 
Yeah. It's almost like a swarm of MLs. I've heard. Uh, yeah, 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 that's yeah, totally right. And you know, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening on the battlefields in Ukraine right now with drones. And right. That yeah, yeah. is also a fascinating space, and very much I think heading in the direction of lots of ML running at the edge. It's it's funny you mention that. So I live in a DC area, and mm. um, I was at a government tech symposium about two three weeks ago now, and they were talking about that, that, you know, edge is going to be much more important in the future of warfare. Mm-hmm. And he's presumably elsewhere too, right? It was prim- primarily a government and defense. It was definitely a military industrial complex uh, <laughs> type of type of event, but he was explaining like, you know, in the past, you know, 20 years, we've not dealt with adversaries. We've only dealt mm-hmm. with our adversaries and in, in, in battle space conditions where it was, you know, we controlled the airwaves. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, I think he used an interesting term. We had airspace and electromagnetic, electromagnetic mm-hmm. dominance. And I was, I was dominance. like, wow, yeah. yeah, that was yeah. yeah. I was like, yeah. oh, that's interesting. So like the whole idea of these disconnected, <clears throat> decentralized networks. I mean, I think you're, I think you're spot on. It's the future for geopolitical reasons, but also just for you know privacy and just kind of flexibility reasons. Yeah. Um, the question I have, though, is like organizations can barely manage the infrastructure they have now and barely manage yeah. the software they have now. What are they going to do when the yeah. software yeah. starts th- not thinking for <laughs> itself? But like this becomes <laughs> another workload yeah. on top of that. Like what? Well, for one thing, that's why Wallaroo is focused where we are and we're trying to build this platform to help people, you know, with this capability of being able to deploy models and manage a fleet of them at the edge. Um, because yeah, there aren't a lot of good solutions for that today. Yeah, um, interesting. I, I think the general answer to your question is probably some combination of cloud and edge. You know, like it does make sense to centralize a lot of things, and it makes the the maintenance easier and uh, more efficient, and you can get some economies of scale and you know all that kind of stuff. But um, we are going to have to get good at managing a bunch of uh, disparate types of things in disparate locations. I think all of us. Interesting. Mm. So this is the part of the show where we'll switch over to the pre-made questions. And for your convenience, I will uh, paste that in here. Hopefully, paste it in. There we go. <laughs> so you had an interesting career. I'm looking at LinkedIn. You were at SendGrid. You were, then you were at DataRobot. And you said you made a switch into the, the data world, which begs the question, how did you find your way into data? Did data find you or did you find your way to data? Um, I guess that is a good question. I think that uh, it was probably a little bit of both. Um, finding my way to data, I think that the beginning of the story is probably at SendGrid. Um, and I joined SendGrid as a DevOps engineer. And to be honest, I had not really heard of SendGrid at the time. I knew a little bit about it, but it, um, you know, I didn't really understand what it was uh, too much or the scale. Um, SendGrid, by the way, is now owned by Twilio, but they have an API for sending email and they make it just really easy to integrate with uh, websites and applications and, and software. So you don't have to worry about SMTP and, you know, DKIM signing and all the other like gnarly bits of, of email. Um, <clears throat> turns out that SendGrid had a ton of data. <laughs> They're handling billions of emails a day. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of metadata there. There's the, the actual data of the email and, and so on, the recipients and 
who to send it to and all that stuff. Um, and so working in that space, uh, I was dealing with tons and tons and tons of data. I mean, we had, um, we were using mostly MySQL and we had these massive, massive clusters. Um, I think we had like 30 or 40, you know, schemas under management. Each schema was a cluster of anywhere from like six to 40 plus servers, um, wow. you know, with lots of compute and everything else. Um, so that was probably my first foray into like really thinking about data as a first class citizen and, um, and even to the extent of like, you know, or building an architecture around the data, right. So that you can optimize the flow of the data, um, and being able to store it and process it and transmit it fast enough to keep up with, uh, with the flow. Um, and so, yeah, from there, uh, you know, had a lot of fun, learned a lot of things about um, startups, about industry, about uh, DevOps and, and all kinds of things, and management as well and leadership, because that's where I first uh, started managing teams and then moved to Data Robot and um, into the ML space. And then it was a whole nother learning journey about, uh, you know, data uh, engineering, feature engineering, um, transformation tools, how do you curate your data um, and how do you really like know what you have and inventory it and um, make it available to people within the business so that they can get value out of it. Interesting. Very much. So our next question is, what's your favorite part of your current gig? Um, I think it's actually, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to say I have two favorite things. <laughs> uh, and I, I kind of always have, I, I figured out this formula a while back um, in terms of what motivates me. And it's one part, the people that I work with and another part, uh, the problems that I get to solve. So I want to work with smart people. I, I really don't like being like feeling like the smartest person in the room. Um, I much prefer to surround myself with people that are smarter than me and I respect and I can learn from. Um, but then I also, you know, I enjoy, right? Uh, we spend a lot of time at work, so it helps to, to enjoy the people that you're working with. Sure. Um, so that's a big part of it. And then um, finding tough problems, hard challenges. You know, if I don't have hard challenges to keep me, uh, to keep my mind engaged and occupied, I start to get bored and um, that's no fun. I prefer to, to always have something new to, to, to you know, be chewing at. Um, so yeah, good people, smart people and hard challenges. That is that is really awesome. I I feel the same way about about both of those things. The um, for me though, I I um, trying to find people that are smarter than me is really easy. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. I, I enjoy that part a lot. Like Frank, Frank me is too. smarter than me. <laughs> well, well, thank you. <laughs> um, so we have a couple of uh, complete this sentence uh, mm. questions. The first one is when I'm not working, I enjoy blank. When I'm not working, uh, I enjoy reading. I enjoy movies. Um, I go biking sometimes. That's part enjoyment, part exercise. You know, it's good for me. But um, yeah. there's a lot of good uh, road biking, in particular around Denver, and a lot of beautiful scenery. So you can, you know, just ride for a while and find yourself up in the mountains or something, which is great. Um, yeah, traveling, cooking, all these things are good. Our next fill in the blank is, I think the coolest thing about technology today is blank. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I, I don't think it's necessarily something about today, but I think the coolest thing about technology is how it builds on itself. Mm. Um, I remember uh, years and years ago, I was studying for the CCNA exam and 
that was such a formative moment for me to suddenly understand how networks worked all the way from the physical, you know, sending electricity down a copper wire and it can yeah. be on or it can be off and that's it, right? And you can do that really, really fast, switch from on to off, on to off, on to off, all the way up to uh, web 2.0 and, and Ajax and, you know, asynchronous JavaScript stuff happening in Google Maps, right? And I can just drag my map around, just mind blowing. Um, and honestly, like that, that journey from the zeros and the ones up to Google Maps, uh, that was, you know, what, 50, 60 years of um, technology building on itself, of people mm -hmm. solving very small, simple problems. But you add up all those small, simple solutions and you get something incredibly complex and absolutely mind-blowing. Excellent. Very interesting. Uh, the last, the third and final, complete the sentence. I look forward to the day when I can use technology to do blank. I I would love a, a personal assistant, you know, like Jarvis from from the Marvel comics or something, or um, I don't know. From I, I'm big into sci-fi and and things like that when I read. So um, there are plenty of examples, but some kind of a smart personal assistant that, you know, I can chat with and it keeps track of my calendar and reminds me of appointments and, um, you know, when to call my dad and whatever else, stuff like that. Um, I just think that's so cool. And I don't, you know, with, especially with all the new LLMs and, and GPT stuff that's happening, I don't think we're super far from that. So it's kind of exciting to me. Very no, cool. you're right. Like I, you know, if you watched, uh, you know, when I was a kid, Star Trek Next Generation was on, and the way that they were able to interact with the computer just through their voice. Yeah. And I mean, the first Star Trek show had that too, but like the way the conversations I thought were more richer and more kind of interactive. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of that now. Yeah. I think some of the uh, fundamental pieces are in place now. Yeah. Um, it'll probably take a little while to put them all together and make it yeah. work right. But yeah. Agreed. So our next one is uh, share something different about yourself. But we uh, always remind guests that we're trying to keep our clean rating uh, yeah, yeah. on iTunes. So, <laughs> um, I don't know. I think one of the more interesting things about my journey is that I don't have a background, like a, a degree in anything technical. Um, I went to college and I got my undergrad studying Greek and Latin and classics. And so it was mostly history, archaeology, languages, and things like that. Nice. And Computers have always been a hobby of mine, and, and I definitely did some computer science stuff in high school. I took one or two classes in college, um, but I didn't really make my way into that professionally until a few years after college. Um, and, you know, honestly, I, I don't think it's hurt me at all. Um, and in many ways, I think it's helped me, partly yeah. because, you know, it, it helps a lot with management and leadership um, just to to kind of have a broad background and, and understand, you know, different people and perspectives and, and where they might be coming from. Um, and I'm sure that some of the languages, you know, studying languages helped me picking up computer languages as well. I think there are a lot of similarities in, in uh, human languages and, and computer, you know, programming languages, but what? Um, yeah, but yeah, it, it is somewhat unique and I don't run into too many other classics majors uh, at, you know, tech startups. I could definitely see the convergence, especially now when we're talking about LLMs and the like, right. um, you know, the the nearest neighbor algorithms and all of that that are that are being applied. Because my understanding is that's that's 
you know, that's how that works is it picks the next best word, right? you know, in a, in a sentence. Yep. And so syntax yep. and grammar and all of the things you studied in depth, mm-hmm. um, that should be very helpful. Yeah. No, that's, that's awesome. Um, there is that good value in um, like a classics education. I, I went to Jesuit high school and Jesuit college. You know. mm-hmm. I was forced into studying Latin and things like that. <laughs> like, didn't do it voluntarily. I'm not going to admit that. Uh, not do that. But, but like, as yeah. I get older, like, it's definitely like, oh, I get this. Like, you yeah. know, and especially when dealing with a lot of lawyers, there's a lot of Latin in that. Yes. And so I'll hear them, like, you know, spew some words. I'm like, I think I know what that means. Uh, um, Audible sponsors data driven. Mm. uh, And you mentioned you read a lot. Do you do audio books and sci fi? Um, Do you have any recommendations? Yeah. um, There was a really good book that I read recently. Like, this was maybe a year ago or something, but um, best book I've read recently. It's. the title of the book is called Seeing Like a State, and it's by uh, James C. Scott. The The longer subtitle is um, something like how some schemes to improve the human condition have failed or something like that. Hmm, but um, it talks about this concept of legibility and how a lot of the developments over the course of the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, and, um, and the last few hundred years in, in our society have been primarily driven by the centralization of power in states and the state needing to administer all of these people, taxes, lands, land ownership, and all these different things. And, um, you know, as part of like the, the enlightenment, the scientific revolution, um, we all got very enamored with like rational thought and logic and, and all of this stuff. And we thought, ah, we're understanding the principles of the universe. We can predict the motions of the planets and all these things. Well, we can solve all these problems about you know, around human civilization and humans as well. Um, and in a lot of cases, it failed, right? And we didn't know as much yeah. as we thought we did. And one of the sort of basic like premises of the book, I guess, or arguments that it's trying to make is that we routinely underestimate um, the complexity of the natural world and how necessary it is. And we think we can simplify things and strip out all these variables and go you know monocultures in our in our agriculture for example and do industrial scale agriculture you need timber for building ships great we'll just plant norwegian pines in straight rows this is going to be great it's so predictable we know exactly what you know an acre of that will yield after 10 years um but it turns out you can't strip out all the variables because the whole thing falls apart you need the complexity of the ecosystem to keep all those trees healthy um, and so all that predictability you thought you had disappears within a couple of generations because um, it can't sustain itself. Wow. So anyway, it, it's a very like complicated book. <laughs> um, I'm not really doing it justice, but I definitely recommend it. Interesting. Okay. It's on Audible. Um, nice. Yeah, yeah. So definitely check it out. Um, Audible is a sponsor of the show. So if you go to thedatadrivenbook.com, uh, you'll be routed to an Audible page. And if you choose to get a subscription uh, to Audible, um, you will give us, you'll get a free book and then we'll get like a little bit of a bump on the head and pat on the back and probably enough to buy a cup of coffee. It started. Which we'll share. Which we'll share. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, and the final <laughs> question, where can people learn more about you and Wallaroo 
and they even made that rhyme. Yeah, <clears throat> great. Um, I think the best place to go is the Wallaroo website, which, um, as Andy mentioned earlier, is wallaroo.ai, so W-A-L-L-A-R-O-O.ai. And we've got a ton of great stuff on there, um, lots of you know documentation and, and white papers and uh, tutorials and things about the product and what we're doing there. Um, and for myself, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest place to find me, um, Chris McDermott. And um, I think I even have that as my like uh, LinkedIn uh, profile name or whatever. So it's in the you know in the URL. Cool. It is uh, actually C.S. McDermott. Ah, okay, well, thank you. <laughs> Close. I was just looking at it, and I was also looking at the website. It's a very nice website. Thank uh, you. Great design. And um, although I can't design great websites, when I look at one, I can tell whether it's great or not. Me so too. There's Me that. too. Same boat. I can't do it myself, <laughs> but I definitely appreciate it. <laughs> I, I can't cook, but I appreciate a good meal. There we go. <laughs> yeah. That's it. And with that, we'll let Bailey finish the show. Thanks, Frank and Andy. And thank you Chris for putting up with our broken calendaring system. Satya should really look into that now that the drama around OpenAI is over. Well, over for now at least. Maybe GPT-5 can fix it. <laughs>